Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Previously, we cultivated our historical understanding of the developments of Marina rice farming that took place in the 17th century. Namely, we learned about the construction of massive irrigation projects by a pair of Marina kings, which allowed for a year-round growing of wet rice paddies. The rise of these new technologies and the intensive rice farming which depended on them drastically transformed the economy of Emerina. The food surplus from intensive rice cultivation led to a sharp increase in population growth, as well as a diversification of the Merina economy away from solely relying on subsistence farming. Things look like they're on an upward trajectory for the Merina kingdom, but we'll soon find out that things might not be quite as optimism-inspiring as they seem. Emerina is about to truly enter a golden age, but only after going through a decade of strife. Season 4, Episode 10, Andrea Massina Falona and the Hofa Revolution. While Andrea Andehibe's rule over Emerina was a period of great progress and prosperity, it was also a period of brewing instability. Throughout his two-decade-long reign, the primary goal of his administration, the expansion of Emerina's network of well-engineered irrigation canals, was meeting and even exceeding expectations. However, questions were mounting about the future of Andrea Andeibe's kingdom. Particularly, there was the deep, seemingly eternal conundrum of succession, and on what grounds the next monarch should be selected. When it came to the designation of royal heirs, a persistent theme has been rooted in Merina history thus far. A contradictory dichotomy of selection through tradition and selection through merit. Ever since the kingdom's establishment by the Fasimba queens and their descendant Andrea Maniello, the stated tradition of succession in Imerina was clear. The eldest son was to rule first. The system of governance in Imerina, known as organized succession, had been far from consistently applied, though. The original version of this law of organized succession, as espoused by Rangida, demanded that her two sons share power through a rotating system of kingship, with each son ruling one day, followed by the other ruling the next, though with the elder brother remaining the superior, mentor-like figure worthy of the other's respect and deferment. However, the younger brother's sons would, in exchange, receive the right to rule the kingdom afterwards, compensating their father for his patience as serving as the inferior ruler during his own lifetime. As we saw, this system did not last long at all. When Rangita's elder son, Andrea Maniello, murdered the younger over a dispute, Rangita's interpretation of organized succession died with him. Andrea Maniello modified the system to try and rectify and retroactively respect his mother's wishes. Throughout the years, organized succession had shifted considerably even since then. Andrea Maniello tried to right the wrong of murdering his brother by forcing his son to marry his niece ensuring that his brother's line would see the throne in future generations, even if his brother was not there to witness it. The next king, Ralambu, changed the system yet again, prioritizing the merit of his sons as future rulers over the order of their birth. However, this meritocratic system of heir selection would also prove short-lived. Ralambu's son, Andrian Jaka, despite managing to attain the throne only due to his father's commitment to meritocratic inheritance, revived the system of age-privileged succession. The next two generation of Merina kings were both selected to inherit the kingdom based not on their personalities or character, but solely on their gender, male, and order of birth, first. 
Now, while it might sound like I'm clowning on order-based inheritance, that's not really my intention. Yes, from the perspective of our modern world that is politically dominated by republics or figurehead monarchies, almost every facet of monarchical government can seem kind of like quaint and obscure relics of the past. But these systems had a genuinely palpable impact on the people living under them. These systems of inheritance are both shaped by and shapers of historical reality. When it comes to running a stable system of government, selection based on birth order does give some genuinely important advantages. For starters, the concept of merit, like, it's subjective. What does that even mean? While birth order is objective, it's something that cannot be denied and is unquestionable. Additionally, the idea of meritocratic succession can open up a can of worms in terms of legitimacy. After all, the selection of heirs based on merit is, in a sense, a tacit admission of the fallibility of the heirs. In a monarchical system like that of Imerina, legitimacy matters. Kings only have power when their subjects, particularly their subjects of the noble classes, take their rule seriously. The Andriana, of course, are the main source from which the Mpanjaka Imerina drew his wealth and armies with these Andriana in turn drawing their own wealth and armies from the Hofa nobility below them. Losing these noble classes' confidence was tantamount to losing power altogether, and slyly admitting through meritocratic succession that your children are potentially flawed and we should select the least flawed of them can set them up for failure in maintaining the nobility's confidence. Finally, it's important to acknowledge that beyond the political benefits of such a system, Hereditary monarchy is by its nature a family affair. Picking a successor based on merit is, in many ways, like picking a favorite. Favoritism among royal children could not only result in personal discomfort, but also in bubbling resentment. Choosing succession based on birth order is a bit less of a sting. A youngest child knows from an early age that not only is their passing over nothing personal, but it's also something that cannot be negotiated, debated, or fought for, thereby reducing inter-sibling political rivalry. All of these statements are true, but can be further complicated by context. In the case of Imerina, the precedent of meritocratic succession, along with the implication of fallibility that came with it, had already been established by Rolambu, despite the fact that Rolambu himself had tried to avoid doing so. Remember that while Rolambu had chosen Andrian Jaka over his older brother, he had done so explicitly within the ideological context of organized succession by allowing his elder son to take Andrian Jaka's role as the progenitor of the next generation of queens. But even then, this system still reinforced the idea that organized succession was imperfect. And, as we'll see in this episode, the wheels of legitimacy will soon fall off the Merina royal system, and the old Merina kingdom as we know it will shatter into chaos. As we introduce our tragic drama, let's meet the key two figures in this story, the two legitimate heirs of the Mpanjake Merina, Anfernadebe. These two heirs were his sons, Razakatsi Takatrandria, the elder, and the younger son, Andrian Jacques Volandambo. Now, from a very young age, their father impressed on the boys that there was to be no competition between them. Razakatsi Takatrandria, as the elder son, was the superior to his little brother in terms of politics. No questions asked. When the time came for their father to pass, it would be the elder brother who inherited the position of king. 
One story from the Tantara displays the type of cooperative spirit that Andrea Daibe sought to instill in his sons. According to this story in the Tantara, the two sons one day were tasked with assisting their father with a new canal project, with each of the teenage boys leading a work levy team to build a dike on each side of the canal. Despite their father's stern request otherwise, the boys immediately turned the dam building project into a competition because, well, they were teenagers. They raced to see which of them could finish their respective dam first. Andrian Jacafalondambo, despite his junior age, was renowned for his effective leadership skills, effectively directing the labor of his workers in a way that his uh, somewhat socially awkward older brother simply could not equal. As a result, not only did Andrian Jacafalondambo finish his dam first, but he decided that he had enough time for a little bit of a victory lap, traveling up to meet his still-working brother to let him know that he had destroyed him in their little contest. However, the father noticed his son as he was walking over to brag and stopped him. He informed him that it was never the younger brother's place to boast. Remember that, no matter their differences, Razakatsi Takatrandria would be his superior when the kingdom became theirs. This interaction serves as an effective summary of the brother's childhood dynamic. Andrian Jacobo despite exhibiting superior leadership skills, was made to play second fiddle to his otherwise less impressive brother. And when their father passed away, their childhood dynamic became a political one. With Andrian Daibe's passage and burial into the tombs of the Rofa, Razakatsi Takatrandria inherited the throne becoming the new governing Mpanjaka Imerina. Andrian Jacobo on the other hand, was given the title of the new Andriana governor of the region surrounding the old capital city at Alasora. In the tradition of organized succession, the younger brother was to then patiently respect his brother's authority, while his children would one day inherit the kingdom, whether through marriage or by becoming the heir. However, almost immediately after he took the throne, Razakatsi Takatrandria proved to be far from an ideal king. The Tantara does not elaborate greatly on the king's alleged mismanagement of this position, which is kind of understandable given that it is generally portrayed as a shameful period, which Malagasy traditional historians would rather not elaborate on. The sparse narratives about this time generally depict the older brother as being stubborn, cruel, and generally unwilling to heed the advice of his counselors altogether. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame stories wherever you get your podcasts. Basically, he was just a real pain to work with. The king was most infamous for his disrespectful conduct towards his advisors, often cutting them out of the decision-making process entirely or refusing to consult or even listen to their advice. In fact, by the time of Rasakatsi Takatrandria's reign, the Rofa of Antananarifu had expanded considerably to include small neighborhoods designed to house the royal advisors. However, in a later account we'll hear, during the reign of Rasakatsi Takatrandria, these homes were largely filled with the king's entourage instead, implying that he had kicked out the advisors from their homes to make room for his personal buddies. 
Resentment against Rasakatsi Takatrandria proliferated within the shunned bureaucracy, with the leader of the opposition being a respected man named Andrea Mampantri. For a man who would go on to play such an enormous role in the history of Imerina, Andrea Mampandri's early biography is quite obscure. Even simple biographical details, such as his place and year of birth, are not precisely recorded or known. The only thing that is generally agreed upon in primary sources is that, despite his overtly royal-sounding name, Andrea Mampandri was of Hofa, or free, non-royal, heritage. Andrea Mampandri first rose to prominence as a Sikiji reader for the previous king, and his predictions had become so renowned that he was eventually promoted to become the Mpanandru, or Maker of Days, the head diviner of all of Imerina. Despite being a well-respected member of the Merina court, the Maker of Days soon found himself repeatedly frustrated by the rise of his new liege, who routinely ignored his advice and disrespected him. So, flustered to his bitter end by having to deal with the spoiled brat, Andrea Mampandri convened a council of like-minded men. These men were, like Andrea Mampandri, overwhelmingly Hofa, but were still men of important status. Known in Merina historiography as Hofa nobility, these men were a combination of valued governmental advisors like Andrea Mampandri, respected leaders within Deme communities, or the heads of families that owned large plots of valuable farmland. Oftentimes, these categories were not mutually exclusive, with Hofa noblemen occupying often one or more of these social roles. After a long, impassioned debate, the Council of Hofa Nobility finally settled on a course of action. They would overthrow the hated king and replace him with his more affable younger brother. Without Rasakatsi Takatrandria suspecting a thing, one day the disgruntled councillors launched their attack. They snuck into the Rofa Fantana Rifu, armed with swords and torches, and approached one of the residential blocks in the fortress. This block, known as Androhalu, was home to many of the king's closest friends, family, and supporters. In a hushed ambush, the mob sneakily set the buildings ablaze. The king's allies, surprised to see smoke pouring over their heads, panicked and sprinted out of their homes for their lives. The detail of whether or not they were allowed to flee peacefully or were cut down by the enraged Hofa is conveniently left out of the narrative. Meanwhile, Rasakatsi Takatrandria emerged from his royal palace, only to see an angry mob in front of him and his allies either dead or far away. The king, facing no other choice, himself fled for his life. He and a small group of loyal followers ran to the neighboring Sakalava kingdom and asked for refuge. While the exact causes for the rebellion are admittedly somewhat vague, the effect of Andrea Mampandri's revolts are quite well documented. For one, the revolt represented a startling example of class conflict and a resurgence in Hofa political power. Ever since the reign of Ralambu, really, Merina history has played out in a lengthy trend of growing royal power at the expense of the Hofa. The traditional local economic and political power structure among the Hofa, the extended family units called Demes, had seen their power eroded substantially as their land was placed under the authority of Menakelje, or land grants owned by Andriana. Even though they were considered free residents of the kingdom, Hofa, even powerful Hofa, were often forced to work on large infrastructural projects at the behest of Andreana lords or the Mpanjaka Merina himself. For example, those large irrigation canals we've been talking about. Now, the Hofa nobility tolerated this erosion of their class power for several decades because, 
Well, some of these goals were in their mutual interest. Sure, the drafting of Hofa labor was unfair and often came at the expense of the labor economies of local demes, but the irrigation projects they worked on provided generous economic benefits in the long term. Sure, the division of their land under Andreana landholders was certainly a threat to their livelihoods, but in exchange for protection from the Sakalav and other raids by a supernaturally endowed king, it seemed worth it. Not to mention that previous Mpanjaka Emerina had gone out of their way to ensure that Hofa noblemen were listened to and taken seriously as organs of state. But once these concessions were taken away, the contradictory interests of the Andriana and the Hofa became more apparent, and class conflict became an inevitability. With Andrea Mampandri and his supporters now in control of the capital, they appointed a new king more friendly to their interests. This new king was, of course, the younger brother Andrian Jaka Volandambo. And, after elevation to the throne, the new king decided he needed a newer, more cool title. So, in a sort of Octavian Augustus type deal, he changed his name to the name that is better remembered by history. Andrea Massina Falona, meaning the Prince of the Holy Fold. So, to avoid confusion, just remember that Andrian Jaka Falondambo is now Andrea Massina Falona. They're the same guy, just using different names, alright? So, the reign of Andrea Massina Falona is a pretty big deal because it's generally regarded as Imerina's first true golden age. While the material life of the people in Imerina had been improving generally as a trend for the last half century, the era of Andrea Massina Falona was when that prosperity finally came to pay off. The defining characteristic of Andrea Massina Falona throughout his rule would be his gentle and compassionate approach to leadership. Compared to his father and brother, who had been unforgiving in their relentless exploitation of Hofa labor, Andrea Massina Falona proved consistently willing to take his Hofa subjects' complaints and concerns seriously, and compromise with them when necessary. While traditional retellings of Merina history attribute this style of leadership to the king's benevolent nature, I think that at least some of this gentler style of rule can be identified as stemming from the reassertion of Hofa autonomy that had brought Andrea Massina Falona to power in the first place. After all, if Andrea Massina Falona did not rule in such a manner that the Hofa nobility were accepting of, it's likely that he would have met the same fate as his brother. Crucially, one of Andrea Massina Falona's first decisions as king was pretty transparently an effort to appease the Hofa elites by appointing the leader of their rebellion, Andrea Mampandri, as essentially his prime minister. While the seer received no new official title, remaining as the maker of days, he would go on to play an important de facto role as the king's closest advisor and second in command. After almost a century of unremitted decay of Hofa autonomy, a Hofa man was now arguably the second most powerful person in Imerina. But while Andrea Massina Falona's reign would go down in history as a golden age, its early years were anything but. To initiate his kingship, Andrea Massina Falona had to contend with a military invasion. And from who else could this invasion have originated than from the Sakalava? When we last heard about Sakalava, it was a united empire under the rule of a mysterious Maroseranya royal dynasty. Conquering most of the significant ports of Madagascar's western coast, the Sakalava had enjoyed great success as the controllers of trade between Madagascar and the rest of the world, demanding hefty tribute payments and fines from European, Indian, Arab, and Swahili merchants 
who sought to buy and sell in their ports. However, since we had last seen this western kingdom, the empire had split into empires, specifically two new empires during a succession dispute between two Sakalava princes. So now there was no Sakalava kingdom, but two Sakalava kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Menabe and the northern kingdom of Boigny. While you might expect that the fracturing of the Sakalava would put the rest of the island at ease, that couldn't be further from the truth. Both Sakalava kingdoms were still quite powerful and continued aggressively expanding their influence across the island, and each eventually surpassed even the old unified kingdom in terms of wealth and power. In fact, it was during this period when one of the most famous martial traditions emerged in Sakalav culture, Western Madagascar's traditional fighting style called Morangi. If you'd like to learn more about this Malagasy martial art, the techniques it employs, and the context of its mysterious rise to become one of the foremost cultural symbols of the Sakalav and Madagascar, then I'd highly recommend you check out our new premium episode on the topic on Patreon. We now have a library of 40 unique premium episodes, so if you'd like to access and enjoy these episodes, or listen to these standard shows ad-free, or enjoy behind-the-scenes content, then please check out patreon.com slash historyofafrica and consider signing up. And if you're already supporting the show, a heartfelt thank you. Anyways, when Razakatsi Takatrandria was overthrown, he of course retreated as a political refugee to Menabe. There, he beseeched the king of Menabe to supply him soldiers for an expedition to retake his old crown. So, the king of Menabe agreed to support the scorned king of Imerina, and in 1675, an army of Sakalava soldiers marched into Andrea Massina Falona's kingdom. Fortunately for Andrea Massina Falona, he was able to defeat this usurping army, forcing his brother to retreat back to Menabe in shame. The king of Menabe, disappointed in his peon's failure, would never provide Razakatsi Takatrandria with another army, forcing the deposed Mpanjaka to live the rest of his life in peaceful and obscure exile. With his brother defeated, Andrea Massina Falona could now finally begin his rule outright as the sovereign of Imerina. As part of his new, more relaxed and considerate style of leadership, Andrea Massina Falona announced his new system of lawmaking known as Cabarie, or Assembly. In this new system of Cabarie, the Mpanjaka could no longer act unilaterally, but had to announce any laws that he planned on making ahead of time before their enactment. Then, he would have to receive approval for his new proposed law after a session of debate from the assembled Hofa and Andriana noblemen from around the country. Additionally, the king further clarified the often tense relationship between the Demes and the Andriana who ruled over them. In a series of meetings and assemblies, he clarified the exact extent of each Andreana's land claims to avoid overlap, as well as instructing all Andreana to avoid tyrannical behavior and to respect the varying cultural customs that existed throughout the kingdom. To prevent overlapping claims, as well as to prevent absentee landlording, the king also designated that certain subcasts of Andreana would be confined to certain regions of the land they ruled over, and that if Andreana ruled over a piece of land, they had to live there. The Andriana were not only having their interests curtailed at these meetings, though. As the king stipulated new enforcement of mandatory annual taxes, which were to be paid to them, the newfound willingness of the king to provide his Hofa subjects with a true degree of political agency paid off considerably. 
Not only did the newfound inclusivity towards Hofa elites and decision-making promulgate a stronger degree of stability in Emerina, but it also made the idea of submitting to the Impanjaka Emerina much more palatable to independent demes. You see, surrounding the Merina kingdom, there were still dozens of independent villages and confederations. The leaders of these villages were often understandably quite hesitant to submit to the protection of the Merina state due to concerns that this would erode their autonomy, which, you know, it would. However, the new policy in Merina of providing Hofa lords with a say in government alleviated these fears to an extent. No longer quite as scared of losing their autonomy, Hofa lords from around the fringes of Imerina began to declare their vassalage to Andrea Massina Falona. To the east, the lord of the Hofa who lived on the mountain Angafo pledged his people's submission to Antanarifu, followed by several other lords in the west doing the same. Within just a few years, without firing a single shot or mustering a single soldier, Andrea Massina Falona had almost doubled his kingdom's territory. One of these newly submitted territories was a hilltop settlement which would go on to become one of the most important sites in Malgasi history. In the year 1700, the lord of the hill town Amboimanga decided to join many of his neighbors in submitting to the vassalage of Andrea Massina Falona. One interesting perk that made Amboimanga so special is that if a bonfire was lit in the town square at night, the angle was just perfect so that Andrea Massina Falona himself could see the distant flicker of its orange flames while standing in the entrance of his home. Because of this interesting quirk, Andrea Massina Falona developed a fondness for the town and decided that he would develop it into a royal retreat. Featuring its own impressive rofa, the town gradually expanded into one of the most important urban centers in Imerina, short only of Antanarifo itself. Unlike the capital, though, Ambuimanga's significance would not come from its agricultural output, the northeastern town was, in fact, located on unusually infertile soil and far away from any major canals or rivers. Instead, Amboimanga gained prominence as a center of trade, particularly due to its advantageous location on a path between Antanarifu and the major eastern port of Toamasina. The nascent but expanding market town will continue to play an important role in Merina history from here on out, especially, hint hint, next episode, so don't forget about it just yet. Andrea Massina Falona's reign was a golden age not only in terms of peace and expansion, but also in artistic and cultural advancements. Just one of the many cultural innovations attributed to his reign is the introduction of the Trano Massina, or Holy House. According to the Tantara, Andrea Massina Falona was the origin of a tradition in which a humble square house would be built on top of a royal gravesite. This home would give the spirit of the deceased king a place to live in his afterlife, as well as providing those who sought to honor his memory with a destination of pilgrimage. Going over all of the various achievements of Andrea Massina Falona would be an impossible task. The man ruled for, depending on which estimation you believe, between almost three to more than three decades, so it's fair to say that he accomplished a great deal in this time. However, while Andrea Massina Falona's rule is almost entirely remembered as a positive one, strangely enough, the decades of success under the king would culminate in one of the worst failed policies in Malgasi history. Join us next episode, as the king struggles to respond to an apocalyptic natural disaster eventually leads him to an ill-advised decision which will tear his kingdom into pieces. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. 
You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Dimitri, Emmanuel Saudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebalabie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Nwakocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Sheyuno Lrontimaim, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rasan Firgiani, and Ni T, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.